A few months back, I stumbled across a headline that at first glance looked kind of dumb. It was called The Surprisingly Solid Mathematical Case of the Tinfoil Hat Gun Prepper. But the article actually backed up the claim better than I thought it could. Its writer is B.J. Campbell, a stormwater hydrologist who writes hand-waving freakeratory on Substack. He looks at society in a uniquely smart way. I was super happy to talk to him about things like revolutions, media bias, and scientists who cave into politics. B.J. Campbell, as I, uh, I, I read something that was one of the more eye-opening articles that I've ever, that I've ever read, and, I've, and I understand I kind of gun math and, uh, in my life, and I've, I've been involved in that, uh, that issue for a long time. But it was the surprising math behind preppers and basically the guys with the tinfoil hats, of which I'm kind of one of those. But step me through that because it was a terrific example of math meeting something that we kind of all instinctually were wondering about. Sure. So, um, well, I'm a, I'm not a writer officially, I guess, technically I am a paid writer now because I've been published in recall magazine and, um, had a couple of other publications since I started writing in 2018. But, um, I got into that because I don't know. I think you recall the, the culture war in 2018 around guns was, was awful on Facebook. It was really, it's ramping back up now, but it was particularly disgusting back then. And there was a lot of things people are saying are just simply mathematically wrong. So I started compiling, you know, I'd have these responses that were just so long and I'd have to redo them that I would just copy paste them. And so I'd save them in word articles and, and then nobody read them. So then I figured I'd look for some place to stick them so that I could just put a link in instead. And I found medium.com I'm off of medium now, but that was where I launched it. And, um, so, you know, the thing that you're talking about was, I guess, Article 5 in a series of articles that went so viral that, like, Cato Institute was referencing it and all kind of stuff. I was really kind of surprised. But so the that article that you're referencing goes back to, it connects my professional experience to it because I'm a, I'm a stormwater management engineer. And uh, I, uh, so part of what I do is I analyze floodplains. And we don't build a house in a floodplain. Um, not because we expect it to flood next year, right? It's a it's a risk analysis thing. So um, when they draw a floodplain line on a map, they're looking at the 100-year event, the worst event you expect to statistically happen average in over a 100-year span. And the way you analyze that is by figuring out what the 100-year rainfall is and based on, you know, uh, historical rainfall data. And then you take a look what the watershed looks like to that spot on the river where you're building your house and you do hydrology, which is the mathematical science of trying to figure out what that much rain is going to look like when it uh, flows down to that point. You do hydraulics to figure out how big the, the, the river has got to be to carry that amount of flow and you draw that line in a map. Right. And then you don't build your house there. Why don't you build your house there? Well, it's not that it's going to flood next year. It's that it might flood at some point during the 30-year mortgage of the house, right? So, because your your bank is a risk analysis group too, right? So the bank says, well, if you've got 1% chance of flooding, that's 99% chance of not flooding. So it's a 0.99 chance of not flooding. Well, if it's not going to flood two years in a row, the way the probability math works is you multiply 0.99 times itself and you get like 0.9801, something like that. And if you wanted to find out what it, the chance that it doesn't flood 30 years in a row, you'd multiply 0.99 times itself 30 times. It's 
99.99 to the 30th power and you do that and you end up with a you know 73.9% chance that it doesn't flood so you've got which a 16.1 over 26, years yeah, tw- 26% chance that it's going to flood right? right so then they don't give you your loan right? right you know or they make you buy flood insurance and the, so then you can do the same thing for violent revolutions in the United States so walking through it, um, you've got, oh, um, use the average date of colonial establishments, maybe 1678. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, 340 years in the sample size. You've got two qualifying events because you had the American Revolution and the Civil War both happened inside that span, which is and, a nationwide. And, and January 6th, of course. <laughs> you start well i mean like you could you could expand this out a little bit more if you wanted to get it broad you could do like you know japanese internment or you could do right. um you know the take oh, how about how about violent lands, how about violent could, riots that take over my town i mean i, I mean I've like you know, a couple of those right i mean like it well you know so those in 2020 were bad were they as bad as the stuff in the 1970s with the weather right. underground you know listening right. a thousand nationwide bombings back then right. uh so wherever you draw the line is you know i decided to draw the line at nationwide violent revolutions with armies attacked. <laughs> Attacking each other. Right? <laughs> that's a that's a pretty bright line. So so if you do that line, you've got two qualifying events. This is about a half a percent chance, uh, 0.58 percent chance per year of something like that happen. Well, how long are you going to live? You're only going to live like 79 years, not you know 30. Mm-hmm. And so if you invert that percent chance and then you raise it to the 78th power. 79th power, you end up with a 37% chance that you or I is going to be stuck in a violent revolution at some point in our lifetime. Now, I'm 57, so I've already wiped out half of that. So I probably have about a 12% chance remaining. Maybe something like that. We could go back and do it. You do, you know, right. just mathematically, what you do is you'd, mul- you'd raise 0.994 to the, you know, 20th power, however many right, right. years you plan on living. But yeah, you could do that. You could do it that way. But now this is a, this is historical frequency analysis. It's super basic statistics. Right, right. Sure. Um, and at risk analysis, people, if they're going to do this kind of thing, they don't use historical frequency analysis like hydrologists do. It's me. But the risk analysis people, when they do the same kind of stuff, they're looking at indicators. And, um, you know, uh, they might have any number of indicators that you try and draw like from. Uh, a breakdown know. of civil civilization, a, right, a increased right. in violent rhetoric, a, a a separation of the of the parties based on ideology. A... <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so right. so party ideology is a big one that they look at. Another mm-hmm. thing that they look at is um, the number of unmarried men in a certain younger age bracket. That's uh, that's a big one that they look at. They look at Wait. some other stuff like that. What's and a- and uh, a Gini coefficient is another huge one is which is wealth inequality. So the ratio of like poor people to rich people is a, and how rich those are, there's math for that. And that's been shown to tie to uh, violent revolutions as well. Like for instance, the Cuban revolution. So when they look at that kind of stuff, they're coming up with a 37% chance over the next 10 years instead of your lifetime, which means that their projections are much more dire than the historical frequency analysis. But that one... You know, that's like a 538 poll. You're never quite sure once you get into that. I mean, the, the interesting thing about yours is it looked at the very base level of just, yeah. okay, uh, and, and that, that, you know, there's not much wiggle room in that to say, well, rhetoric versus now. Like you said, man, I lived through the 70s. I don't remember hardly any bombings. But then you you read the the numbers on it that the FBI was looking at. There were thousands of them. Now they yeah. were mainly not against people. They were smaller 
they were smaller handheld things and, and they'd blow up a car or a mailbox or, or something. But yeah, that wasn't nothing. If you OK, if the number of bombings were happening, if we had one bombing now, it would seem like 500 did okay. back then because right. we would all get that bombing on our phone. Right. It would be like, oh, my God, there's a bombing. Oh, my God, whatever. And right. so the perceptions of how violent we are right now are very warped. And we seem like we're more violent than we are in general. Um, but on the flip side, uh, I think what's going on, you know, I, mean, I, yeah, I wrote that article in 2018. I, you know, I spent two years, you know, really seeming like the, things were tracking up towards something awful. And then when 2020 happened, I was like, here it is. Where, you know, <laughs> buckle up. Here's a popcorn. Like you say, you got your, you're loading your mags. And, and I think that and this, this might not be a popular thing to say, but I think that the BLMs and the MAGAs and everybody else who's involved in 2020 all need to be congratulated for things not getting any more awful than they did. Hmm. To be honest. I mean, like there, there could have been any moment where, where somebody just started hosing crowds right. and whatnot. The worst violence we had was, uh, was rating house. And, and that was really quite, that was obviously self-defense. If you look into all the, you know, all the actual, you know, facts about what happened. And so we didn't see a, near as much violence as I thought we would. And I think and I could be wrong. So I'm kind of reevaluating some of my priors from 2018 when I wrote that article. I think what's going on right now is that um, Twitter and social media are providing a, like a pressure release valve. I think if we didn't, hmm. if I think what's going on right now is when people get really angry in the culture wars, they're popping off on Twitter and then they're going to sleep instead of instead popping of, off at the mall, instead of right. leaving and deciding right. to to enact their behaviors in a more destructive way, uh, which is weird because, well, you know, if you kick all the culture warriors off Twitter, are we going to end up with more actual violence? <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's, something been, it's an interesting topic to explore. The I don't the, I don't know the, the answer. Of that. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a that's a that's a hypothesis. And I don't know how you prove it or not. Yeah, because um, there's a lot of, inter, I mean, you know, it, it's also you can get a hold and 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 get into your own bubble of 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 people in your certain specific brand of extremism too so i mean yeah. certainly it helps in the planning and the, planning the echo chamber problem is is intense and it's a big problem and but you know like the i'm not as worried about the flat earthers all getting together and bombing something as mm -hmm. i am the fact that our two main blue and red tribes are in such echo chambers that they can't resolve basic facts that's something that's very concerning to me and i don't know what the solution is at all like I, I like i the more i look at it the more it just seems like it's just destined to get worse because of how it worked because i have the the nature of of media virility right or vi you know i so i my theory on on a primary driver of this is the media mm -hmm. and from my point of view it is it is the the breakdown of of uh monopolies in the media world uh, mm -hmm. It kind of started in in our lifetime with Fox being a, a uh, an opposite voice on uh, on on cable news. You know, everybody was kind of twenty degrees to the left, and then Fox came out a little bit to the right. But what got it hyperactive was was the internet allowing. Mm -hmm. You know, most most large newspapers had back then a monopoly, right? The L.A. Times, yeah, there was a little L.A. Herald or the New York Times. They didn't really they didn't compete against the Post. They said, you know, here is the news here, and they had kind of a built-in business incentive to not be complete assholes and not like try real hard for a specific tribe. So yes, they leaned left, but they didn't have to try hard until every single article was was competing with every other article out on the internet. 
and and the clickbait concept and and fortunes rose and and fell based on headlines and what's well, the the community that... changed the community changed so well, their audience when, absolutely yeah right so so when you have a, a a print newspaper your community is geographical right and it's going to have reds and blues and yellows and and who knows what other kind of ideology in there. You've got your Christians and you've got your atheists, you got whatever. And you have to present something that is going to get the most number of newspapers sold inside that geographical boundary. Right. Whereas as soon as things shifted to the Internet, you could create uh, – you could – piece together your own community full of right. like-minded people. And it's not that even they tried to do that. It's that that was naturally going to happen because of the way uh, traffic works. So traffic is all about sharing, you know, like once we pivoted over to getting our news on social feeds, mm -hmm. we were all getting anything that agreed with our prior uh, um, indoctrinations. Mm -hmm. And if somebody else had different indoctrinations, they were getting a feed of things that, you know, met their indoctrinations and then the thing that met the indoctrinations the most went the most viral and everybody's getting paid by the click so you're chasing that that viral juice right yeah. and and so you you piece together whatever kind of weird story and it's not like this is unique to one tribe you you, you talk to a red tribe or about it and they're like that's obviously what cnn is doing and if you talk to a blue tribe they'll say that's obviously what fox is doing and it's difficult to make sense of the world when your your online tribes are have such a different understanding of what's happening in reality mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. you know you see and, uh, jan six was a big one you know ridding house was a huge one you know like like the the fact that no nobody on the blue side knows what happened mm -hmm. in kenosha they don't know right that was and, a um i actually think that's good when those happen sometimes um, um i won't i, I remember the the gal on the Chank Uyghur show or whatever, however one pronounces his name, she was um, intellectually honest when it came back because she actually watched the trial and she was like, this is nothing like what I read for months and months before this. And, and right. you saw a number of, of, of people get to that. So I, I, I think, I mean, to me, what's overlaying that is as that process that you described, and I think it was a good description of it, was undergoing, the journalists have have gone from, you know, really people trying to be the referees to more players in the game, because right. as they've they've targeted now their ideological audience more. You know, I used to I used to read The New York Times all the time. I mean, and and now I will on a science story or something else until they until it touches anywhere on politics or or, or social issues. I, I, I don't right. trust them at all now because they are literally radically dishonest, dishonest people. Mm. Um, um, in in there in the way that they hide facts. <laughs> it was funny. They just did a they just did a big poll. So they did this, the dangers of democracy, Siri, right? Because threats to democracy, oh, dangers geez. to democracy. That is now the the big catchword because you know who the biggest danger to democracy is. It's that orange fucker and those people who don't believe in uh, in in, yeah. in 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 elections anymore. Right, right. And so they did this long poll where they asked an open-ended question. What do you think the biggest threat to democracy? People were all over the map. The the one that came out the most only had like. 19% and it was uh, political corruption. And then everything else was kind of kind of down there. Then they asked a dozen, most of the poll was asking about some specific, well, how about Donald Trump? How about MAGA people? How about liberals? How about the media? How about uh, um, um, the Electoral College, Supreme Court? And both parties, of course, their, their top, some of their top answers were blaming the other party. You know, those guys are bad. Uh, those yeah. guys are bad. Right. But the top one overall was 
the mainstream news media because it was like 90% in in Republican side and 60% in Democratic side. And the guys were were flabbergasted. (laughs) But but not only that, so the New York Times does this this write-up on it, talking about how, wow, we expected it to be this and this, but they only mentioned the open-ended answer. So they said, you know what people are all concerned about in America? It's corruption. And they literally in their story didn't mention the meat of their of of their of their poll. It took the Washington Post, which was how I found it. And I was kind of surprised right. that they did it. And it was so it's like that kind of intellectual dishonesty from probably the smartest group pound for pound people at the, at the New York Times is just like a terrific example of of, you know, of of that that new players. But I guess my point for optimism, and let me see if you share this is. So people right now kind of trusted the, 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 the referees in this game. You know, you, again, you knew they were biased, but you would believe largely when you get an L.A. Times story. Yeah, I know their op ed is going to say vote for the Democrat, whoever is the Democrat on the on the uh, you know, on the election this this November. But you would anticipate that that story more or less presented you the important facts. And now I don't trust that anymore. And that we're in a weird disconnect as as the as the media is changing its stripes and people haven't caught up with that yet. Republicans have to a much larger extent than, than Democrats, but that's why everything's feeling so fake. I mean, I worked down in South America where everybody knew that, oh, channel two is owned by the Rodriguez family and, and a political family. Oh, and channel four is, is, is owned by the Jimenez family. So you kind of knew that the, that they were each spinning their things. Whereas now they're spinning it. And a lot of America still thinks that they're the, you know, the, the referee out there. And I guess I'm optimistic in thinking that once we all understand, oh, the New York side, the New York Times is on the liberal side, Fox is on the conservative, Daily Wire's here, CBS is there, that maybe people will be able to better integrate that information and, and, and understand what's going on as opposed to living in their silos. I'm way more pessimistic than you are. <laughs> well, Tell me. And, and, the, and the reason why is, is it Part of the dynamic and what causes media bias is also playing out in fields other than the media, particularly science. So if you're at the New York Times and you're going to write that article, the article on the media, you're going to hide the part that people distrust the media the most because not just because you are, you know, biased towards the media, but because your social group is similarly biased towards the media. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and if you're and you're going to write the, the article about gun control, you're going to write it in such a way that your social group will approve of the way you wrote it. This is natural psychological behavior among mm-hmm. humans, right? You know, like you you, you want to get along with the people you're around. You don't want to piss off your friends, right? You know, this is part of being in a um part of being in a tribe. Well, when COVID came out. <laughs> Most of the scientists realized the thing came from a lab. And most of the scientists were like that that was the most likely reason. Right. You know, and, and they knew both- and they knew it within five seconds of somebody popping in their office saying, sir, in Wuhan. <laughs> yeah, right, right. The second well, somebody said that the Fauci's of the world well, knew what happened. They exactly or, or knew suspected. what happened. Now, well, and. The reason, you know, you you go back to the statistics th- uh, analogy, right? Okay, so we were doing statistics earlier in, in the podcast. How many wet markets do you think are in 
the Pacific Rim. Okay, there's thousands in China, there's thousands in Thailand, there's thousands in Vietnam, there's hundreds or thousands in Cambodia, there's hundreds or thousands in Laos, there's hundreds all across that area. Okay, you've got, you know, conservatively 10,000 wet markets in that whole area. And that you would need. So you say, are you saying that because it came out within a thousand yards of a level four bio lab, that maybe there was a connection <laughs> let me let me phrase it this way obviously that's what i'm saying but let me phrase it you know just to to visualize it mm -hmm. if you had a brand new never before seen global pandemic virus come out of a uh, wet market in the pacific rim every single year since the birth of christ you'd still only have a 30 percent chance of one coming out of wuhan <laughs> Okay, yeah. so that's all you needed to know. That's all you and the, and the guys right. at the beginning knew it. But when Trump said, "I came from the lab or whatever," when it became uh, uh, a China. talking point China. among, yeah, when it when it became become a talking point among the Reds, mm -hmm. the Blues had to socially automatically oppose that, or at least hide their opinions about what happened mm -hmm. in the media and everything else. And so there was a social dynamic in play that literally affected the science that was impacting, you know, everybody's life on the entire globe and the global economy and caused the, the lockdowns caused inflation. All right. Like let's do that inflation math conversation later. That might be fun. But the, the, it, the fact that this is also impacting science itself is um and it's the same dynamic mm -hmm. right it's the sure. same dynamic with the media it's the same dynamic is it this we are in a giant connected tribalism and the tribes are separating and they're culture warring and so you're a, you can't say anything true if it um you know if it violates your cultural alignment and that's the fact that it's beyond the media and it's into every other you know element of of you know professional and society and the rest of the hierarchy that we live by makes me a lot more pessimistic than you are about fixing yeah, this. Yeah, I, I I guess my my optimism comes from the the, the fact that I believe that most people you're you're a hundred percent right that we are drawn to the to the news that makes us look smarter and makes our 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 ideological opponents look stupid or just sometimes people we don't like look stupid that that is human nature the vox I, editors have that one nailed go ahead <laughs> i mean it's like you know the bill o'reilly show it was like you know you could summarize it like he's going to pick some liberal guy here and he's going to beat the shit out of him and he's going to do it in a in a intellectually fun and fun way to watch and that was the o'reilly factor which for years uh you know, trumpeted trumpeted everything on news but i guess where where i have the the read of optimism is that when people start to understand and clearly see the positioning of their various news medias, that they will at least be able to, to use that as a factor to say, okay, I mean, like, look, I love, I was good friends with Andrew Breitbart. I'll go read Breitbart.com. But I know that I'm not getting the whole story there. So when I'm done with it, I'll say, okay, now let me go fact check it over with you know, NBC or CNN or, or, you know, anything, anything that's on the left. And the fact that if you more clearly understand that everybody's a player and it's not which half of the country, 40% of the country still believes it's the media who's really trying to tell you the truth. And then it's the conservative crazies out here. I mean, when everybody kind of understands that everybody's a player in this game, 
like in South America, you say, okay, uh, uh, Channel Dos told me this. I'm going to at least, if I care to know about it, I, I know that I may not be getting the whole story here. And nobody, no New York Times readers or very few New York Times readers right now have, I think, that same attitude that I have towards Breitbart. Yes, I'm reading something interesting here, but if I really want the truth, I need to broaden that out a little bit. And I think right. we're moving towards that. Maybe. I mean, like in some ways, your South America analysis, I think, is quite good because folks down there, they pretty much just don't believe anything. Right. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> what we have, what what might get us there here in the United States is is not just the fact that some people are awakening to the biases and what they're reading, but um, but the sense making crisis itself, like the, the deep fake apocalypse is right about upon us. Mm -hmm. You can you could take a video and with like publicly available software, swap Trump's face onto it mm -hmm. easily. Right. Um, and so you could, so any viral video could be bullshit at any moment. And once people all start to realize that anything that is viral could be bullshit, what would, you know, one of the things that would help perhaps, and people are going to hate me for saying this one, but maybe we just need to flood the media market with bullshit videos like a race to the bottom and then that would finally make it so that nobody believes anything and then maybe we can get ourselves out of the psycho chamber garbage you know yeah i'm not sure i'm not i'm not sure i buy the last aspect as a good thing <laughs> oh that's i think <laughs> yeah, it's bad you had, you had me right till we hit the wall <laughs> sometimes sometimes for an alcoholic to get out of it he's got to get he's got to hit bottom right you know so, so maybe we need to you need to just go that way just it makes Instead of thirty percent of Twitter being bots, what if ninety five percent was bots? Then you know maybe then Twitter you, would then, be then less you, then you would influential it. anymore. You know, I had the New York Times do just a crazy hit piece on me, where if I believed half of it, I'm just amongst the bigger assholes to walk the planet. Really? Wow. And uh, you know, it was one of their t totally perfect jobs of the facts that they used were true, but they made you know red equal green by the time they they they, they put it out there, hiding certain things. You know, hmm. smartly done. And a friend of mine was, you know, on, you know, like, hey, Ken, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. And then he talked to a friend of his who said, well, I don't know the facts, but I just trust the New York Times. And I was like, all right, well, <laughs> well there you go. If we, yeah. if we can at least knock off some of some of that, um, um, I think that that's the first step towards. But, you know, we saw this happen. I mean, you know, we've been in similar situations before in America, and I'd say probably the best analogy is the late 1800s, early 1900s. You had Pulitzer, you had Hearst, you had uh, you had the, the yellow journalism, the whole concept of that. And everybody was was making up and spinning shit as much as they are right now out, out there. And it and it changed. And the big irony of that is, of course, is that The New York Times and, and Adolph Oaks kind of led that change. I mean, they were he was they were the finally ones who said, we finally think there's a market in not sensationalism, but but telling the truth. And, and, and bringing in all sides and, and, you know, fair and balanced in a very real way, right? And I tried that after I left Fox and maybe it was because I executed poorly, but I got my rear end handed to me and I lost, you know, a good chunk of my 401k trying to find that market because yeah. nobody wants to share stuff like that. Nobody wants to say, right. hey, here's an article that says Trump's not completely retarded, but he actually did something bad here, but this part was good you know there's not an audience for that yet right do you, think, yeah, well, do you think there will be i mean do you think that that group of commonsensical people will find uh, outlets they like 
you know, um, if you do sort of the basic sort of slate star codex Moloch view of it, which is applying game theory to the, to the system, um, you know, you come to pretty grim conclusions, right? Like let's say tomorrow that the New York times decided they were going to suddenly do what you're enacting. Well, they'd got a business. Just like you had a hard time finding that market, they lose half their subscribers. Well, uh, and, my and, question and, is, is that market coming? Do you see any reason why people might be, might, might that group may be able to support things like that? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, like you're in media and, you know, like we said, I'm a, I'm an engineer. I make my money. I, I do this kind of stuff for as a hobby. You know, I'll show right. up on podcasts and I write three articles a month and they're fun and interesting, but I'm not trying to support my family doing this. If I was mm -hmm. trying to support my family doing this, I might have to the, chase the freak outery too. That's why I named the blog right. hand waving freak outery because it was a, it was a, a you know, it was a, a criticism of the overall uh, media system. And, you know, when I've talked to like, Benjamin Boyce on his podcast. And if you've run into him, he'd be an interesting guy to get on your thing. He does. Um, he runs a podcast that's about, um, about the modern transgender wars, mostly nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, there's an evergreen college guy knows Brett Weinstein. Uh, but when I talked to him, you know, it was like, maybe the, when we had the same discussion you and I are having, I was like, maybe the, the solution is for more amateur media or at least smaller media to step into that gap. And, oh, and and, 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 it's, and it's it's, ha more, it's happening too. Right, I mean, right, right. I mean, like once once the gatekeep the, the, the internet removes gatekeepers from everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, well, like, and then well, puts well, a, it sometimes. But yeah, well, I mean, like, well, you know, there's no travel agents anymore. Used to right. be you had to call a travel agent to to book your. So now you go to Expedia.com, right? Sure. Um, uh, so when it removes those kind of like you know the barriers between people, um, it creates a space where people can jump out and. Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the flip side too, it creating that space means that there's no way that the central uh, media organizations can back away from the ledge, right? Like, I'll, I'll give you an example is um, mass shooting stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, it has been mathematically shown, like there's scientific studies on it, that the press that mass shooters get after a mass shooting increases mass shootings by thirty percent. Mm -hmm. So the number one thing we could do to reduce mass shootings out of like a, a you know, ubiquitous, you know, concealed carry would be uh, to have media gag orders on mass shootings, right? You'd reduce them by 30%. Right. But, but, but you, one, you can't do that from a government standpoint. And two, even if all of the major media players were all to get together and say, we're all going to shake hands across the aisle and have no stories about mass shootings. We're going to gag order ourselves kind of like the San Francisco media did about people jumping off the Golden Gate bridge. Mm -hmm. um, if the major players would do that, then, you know, people like you and me would pick up the slack and we'd get mm -hmm. all our traffic as people would be searching for the, you know, they'd be looking for the, the, the blood money. They'd be looking for, find out what happened. And uh, so the fact that it's distributed in that way, means that um the game theoretical uh, uh motivations for covering certain things in a sensational way are they're almost set in stone um which is alarming to me right well but 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 what's changing though is the percentage of people who are going then to those large outlets versus the percentage of people who are watching this or watching Joe Rogan or watching individuals out there. Um, right. For me, the brightest spot 
was when I saw my first two or three Rogan podcasts. Cause it was like, me too. Hey, here's a guy who's, who is, you know, he's got his political thoughts, but he's not pushing anything. And, you know, you clearly, it doesn't, didn't take much watching of Joe Rogan to say, I trust this guy. He's, you know, he's, when he hears something different, he doesn't double down and, and stick with a bad philosophy. He says, yeah, I, I didn't know that. And, and he's not, you know, like, like the evening, the evening so-called comedy guys are now opening it up and they're clearly like just it's like a political rally and, and pushing you to causes and you know they have their box that they have to stay into and here's a guy talking about uh you know shooting animals in the head and doing drugs and uh you know and and having potty humor and also being very very smart and open-minded and to me it always boils down to is this person intellectually honest or not I wrote my first article in 2018, about two weeks after I saw my first Joe Rogan podcast. He inspired me to do all this kind of stuff. And it was, I, I know it vividly, it was Joe Rogan episode 1006, was which it? was the first time that Brett Weinstein and Jordan Peterson met. That is the only, I don't know if that, that those two guys were the only time I actually listened to a full three hour Joe Rogan yeah. podcast. That was the first one I ever saw. Right. I was glued. I couldn't yeah. stop watching it. I ended up yeah. like, you know, uh, having to, to do a bunch of work late that night because I, I ended up skipping out on a couple hours right. professionally. You know, I'll link to and that below. Just, what, what, what was the number again? 1006. 1006. Yeah. So as a TV guy, it kind of blew me away. Because it's like, look, I'd produced television for most of my life. Yeah. And you knew that, that there were shows like that. They just didn't get an audience. I mean, you know, they were on PBS and it was the dark background and, 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 and there'd be, you know, kind of in-depth. Guys were usually a little, little, little full of themselves, both wearing ties, a little bit boring. And, you know, th that system evolved into, okay, news shows who – you, you had to live within an hour. You had to have three or four commercial breaks. You had to have intros, outros. You had to tease people to keep them on you know, I mean, there was a very set formula in which you could put a lot of different editorial, but it really bound you up. Yeah. And, and watching that. So that could be one of our primary saviors is people going to individuals, not necessarily groups, because I have more faith in individuals out there than I have in any large group, whether it's Fox or CNN. I mean, you know, I clearly have my, I value these guys here and these guys here. But when I look at individuals, it's easier to get a read on, on if you believe them or not, or if you should believe. Them. Well, I mean, these big organizations, they're dead as fried chicken in the long term because kids aren't watching TV. Like, I, like kids watch YouTube. That's what they watch. They don't watch TV. They That's don't watch true. channels. They don't have. Uh, they don't care a lick about cable. They don't care about any of that stuff. And you know, even up through Gen X, like the only reason any of us have cable TV is to watch live sports. You so know, I, I can like, tell you that that's also moving very slowly, though, because this was a, obviously at Fox News. This was a, a weekly topic of conversation, um, and I ran the dot com there for about a decade, and and there was very much at odds with me and the rest of the channel because. You know, part of it is, is is those numbers were going very slowly. I might get a trillion clicks, but the, the finances weren't any. I, there was a, a time where I was getting 30 million clicks, uh, uh, page views a day, so close to a billion a month. Wow. And my segment or my part of the company accounted for 3% of Fox's bottom line, dollar wise. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, you know, Roger would look at me, Ailes, and, and be like, Ken, if I put another ad in O'Reilly, you understand that's way more than you bring in, right? right. <laughs> so 
what what was your like okay because i i tried to back figure this by looking at mm-hmm. some vox uh some publicly available vox data two or three years ago what was the amount of money you made per click i figured it would be about a third of a penny somewhere in that range is that is that accurate or yeah, was it was it about a, it was a, it's kind of hard to you know video brought in a lot more than and and business articles could bring in a lot more than that versus entertainment articles but you know you put Britney Spears with a skirt hiked up and you get 17 times the amount. So right. I'd say that was roughly a third to a half a cent per click was. was yeah. So I got it right. Out. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I think that was a, a pretty good analysis. And, and, you know, so, I mean, there was a, look, I had to have fights internally there because there were times of like, well, we don't want to talk about the dot com on TV because we don't want people turning off their TV and going to their turning off their TV where we're making a buck a, an hour from them or whatever that is yeah. and turning on that TV so you can make a half a cent per story that that's you know so I mean you know we had to look you know it was a it was a well long, as long as people are still paying for cable Fox is still going to make their money out of that right um it, but you know eventually that's going to that's going to fade off because it, it you know, will but it but that but it those numbers, generational. Those numbers went a whole lot slower than one would have anticipated. Because to be honest, there's a whole lot of 55-year-olds watching Fox right now on TV. They're not going to die till their mid-70s, so, which means we have a 20-year stretch on a good chunk yeah. of that. But you're right. Yeah, my, kids, my kids, <laughs> they moved out to college. I'm like, do you want a TV? Because that was the first thing. A TV and a fridge were all I cared about when, in my dorm. Right. And they looked at me like I asked them if, 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 if I wanted to bring a, you know, a, a Ferris wheel to school. Like a TV. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. No, no, thanks. No, it, it's, you know, like you say, they, they're going to fall off, you know, as people die. You, know. you, you, you had an interesting comment earlier that we were talking about when we were talking about social, social upheavals, the percentage of single men. Get, get, tell me a little bit about that, because it was this is one of those theories that I always said, you know what? That's that's a CIA marker. The CIA likes to try and predict uh, uh, violent revolutions around the world. And one of the th- and that was one of the things that they used to predict the um, the Iranian revolution mm-hmm. was the number of young unmarried men hmm. by ratio in a country is something that uh, that is a one of the markers for driving, a, you know, a revolt because they don't have anything else to do, right? Like if you're a married man, and you, particularly if you have kids, you're not revolting. Like I, I've got a, some undetermined right. number of guns and some undetermined thousands of rounds of ammo in my house right now. I'm a widower with two elementary school kids. There is no way I would participate in any kind of violent thing on any direction. Like if right. we were invaded by a foreign country, I might pick up a rifle. Other right. than that, no. You know, Hey, once the kids go to college though, your math will change. And it's like, ah, what do I got to lose? <laughs> well, then I'll Fuck, be so 60, old. I'm, then I'll, I'll be hanging might, out my pool. Yeah, maybe. You're like, hey, I'm 65. Worst case, I lose 20 years of life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I always said that in the Mideast. They, they needed some of the, of, the, of the consumerism things that would take 18-year-olds and have them have fun as opposed to what else. Because I'll, I'll never forget there was a, an interview right after September 11th. They, they interviewed some, some dude on the streets of you know some country that half the people hated us. Pakistan. And they said, what do you want to do in life? And he said, I either want to join the jihad or I want to move to New York City and become a taxi cab driver. Right. Yeah. And I was like, at one point, obviously those are, you know, one guy wants to kill New Yorkers and the other guy wants to be one. And I said, this guy just wants a bigger life. He wants something better than what he's got going on and something more interesting than working the whatever he does. I got a question for you. Uh, Do you listen to punk music at all? 
Uh, I listened not. to a little X back in the day. But, so uh, there's, a, there's a band called No Effects, okay. and they wrote that song. What, what song is it? Called, it's called 72 Hookers. <laughs> and it is hilarious. It's talking about sending the girls gone wild to Afghanistan to end the war. All right, by, I'll listen you know. to that. How, <laughs> now, how, do you, how do they spell? How do they spell effects? N O F X. N O F X. Of course, I know it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't something that a, a normal person would get. Yeah. So I also had a theory on that. I said, you know, they they talked about those seventy two virgins, but they didn't talk about like. How good looking they were or why they were versions <laughs> you know you get me a 70 year old uh, uh obese woman I, I don't care if she's a virgin or not but that's that's ne neither neither here nor there so the single okay so th that's an interesting um I, I i never knew that it was kind of like tracked in an analytical it's, way it's way one like, of the i mean caa likes to analyze stuff right you know it's right. way easier to sit in langley and analyze data than it is to go out and you know do whatever they you know weird murder shit that they do right. on the side right so like they, they've they got a lot of really great data data analysts there and that was one of the things they they tracked wealth inequality um ratio of young and unmarried men um and uh you know there's a couple of other things that they determined like you know on a on an aggregate basis were indicators for for violent revolutions and i thought that, I thought it, that was really interesting too is it is it wealth inequality or is it the how do I say it, it is not how, objective poverty. It is not poverty. No, I know okay. it's not poverty. So, I, but my, my question is, is how much of that is is mollified or, or, or mitigated by I believe that I'm in a society where I can move up the ladder? I don't know the answer to that question. I wish I did. Um, I'm Cause, sure because anecdotally, could, anecdotally, yeah. it makes sense. My dad right. was, was born poor died doing off okay and everybody said you know my kids can do a little bit better than me i'll never forget we had a it was a guy who was painting my car um and he was from i don't want to say the south american country because it's it was down south it was either argentina or chile and he was like look if you were born in this status you're gonna die in this status there was no and and i wonder how much it's that versus if bill gates makes if, if bill gates quadruples his 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 uh his wealth my life doesn't feel that different. So um, I, it is like Eric Hoffer talks a little bit about this in True Believer. He said that, um, which is something everybody should be required to read twice in their life, once when they're a teenager and once when they're 40. Uh, Hoffer said that um, it's not the destitute poor that cause revolutions. And the reason why is the destitute poor are busy. Mm -hmm. They're trying to survive. They don't have time to to, to embroil themselves in this stuff. That the people who involve themselves in violent revolutions are the comfortable bored poor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the comfortable bored poor have a lot of time on their hands and they spend some of that time on envy mechanics stuff. They see the rich people better off than they are. And that this envy mechanic, and this isn't a Hoffer thing, but it's more of a general thing. The envy mechanic activates, you know, certain neurological hardwire in our brains. And that neurological hardwiring is there. We have, we have hardwiring to share. We have hardwiring to, to, you know, to elevate our communities um, that goes all the way back to primate days. Um, and we also have this, uh, this sort of like overall societal jealousy thing and the tendency towards, uh, revolution is somewhat baked into our minds too because the fear of that causes people to share mm -hmm. right and so that way the whole tribe of you know apes can be elevated 
and so this the thing it just gets activated and it gets activated by when it's not a it's not about reality first off it's not about how poor or rich you are mm-hmm. right if you go and look at the median um the median income in the united states puts you in the top i think five percent or four percent of the world yeah maybe it might be closer to one i i I did that math last week because i was in a facebook argument with somebody and it's somewhere between five and one percent the top you know if you're a median income which means you know median income is like what thirty five forty thousand dollars a year in the united states maybe 50 if you're making that you're in the top you know very narrow band of worldwide but you might not see that because the people you see might have a lot more than you do right? right so it's not about overall poverty it's about the differential Especially if you're on, especially if you're on Facebook and Instagram and that's, and then social media exacerbates your perceptions about the differential because all you're doing is watching real housewives of XYZ. Then you're seeing a bigger differential between them and you. And also on Facebook, everybody represents the best thing about themselves and not the worst, right? You know, nobody's going to like have a 10 photo long thread about their toilet breaking. So the, so that exacerbates that mechanic. And then that tends to drive us more towards this, you know, violent revolution scenario, which is something that I was very alarmed about again, 2018, 2019. And I thought for sure, like I said, 2020 was going to be it, but you know, golf clap, we avoided it then. Um, so I, th- I think the, the huge group of people that you're most worried about are, are kind of guys like you and me who aren't going out and protesting in the streets who have weapons. And uh, it's like, how do I say it? The big fear is that the people who didn't want to get involved someday get involved. And I don't think we're close to that. No, not at all. I mean, like the things are too good to revolt here. Yeah. It's nice here. Yeah. Living it's here weird. It's like, like I, I mean, I live right, right outside of San Francisco, right across the bridge. And, you know, I, I turn on my computer and, and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in there. The, the needles are real, but not everywhere. I go to certain parts of town and it's just like, uh, you might notice a homeless guy driving in or, or, or two, but it's not the planet of the, you know, planet of the of Lord of the Flies type stuff going on in, in certain parts of it. And man, you close your computer, life's pretty good. The air's clean, the water's clean, the kids' school, the, 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 you know, the, it's free and they don't teach them too many crazy things that, that, uh, that, you, that you have to over, overdo. And yeah, life's going pretty well in America. I was uh, in the Bay Area for the first time in several decades, like a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. um, to, taking a pistol, uh, taking a pistol class that was put on by Open Source Defense, one of my uh, one of the organizations I write for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a gun rights organization and very cool and very interesting. We can talk about them later if you want. Oh, um, I do. I want to. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so we were doing all all doing a tactical pistol shooting class that was there over the weekend and dry, in San Jose, mm-hmm. and um, I was surprised that i mean i was surprised that there were any homeless encampments at all over there you know um and because like i if i'm driving around atlanta i don't see them right um and uh and that's silicon valley you'd think that like yeah no it it spread it spread from it spread from and this happened in la and certainly san francisco it spread from the places where they always i mean look there were some pretty bad slums in in la but it's so spread apart you never see them. I mean, I lived right. in LA for 20 years and I never saw certain places until like, wow, you, you had to go down to get some item repaired in some part of LA that you'd never been to. And you're like, holy crap, look at this. But but the freeways go right by them and, and you know, you just, you just don't pop into that. 
But that's what's really driving a lot of, of people's awareness of it is, is because it's spreading out of, of, of those areas. Um, right, right. I was reading, what's, what's the guy's name? I think it's Schellenberger. Is that hmm? the guy's name? Michael, yeah. Michael Schellenberger. Yeah, um, and uh, he was saying that when he's done kind of polling and talk to the folks that are in those camps, that a lot of them are from other places in the country that moved there because it's easier to be a junkie in California than it is to be a junkie in Oklahoma. Oh, sure. I mean, could you and, imagine showing up at Salt Lake City needing or wanting drugs and no job and just you like stripped down junky clothes. It's like you probably have many more. It would be much easier to get help in a real way than it would be to find the drug addicts there. Whereas in San Francisco, I can give you the address to go. You know, right. Here it's legal. The guys are selling it right over there. You can actually go get your free needles from the city here and you can pick up some payments from uh, from from the state and the, and the, and the county over at, at, at this block over here. It's 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 very. Yeah. Convenient. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, everybody in life. They should build a wall. <laughs> <laughs> Where? You know, it's like I, I, I tell people about the wall and, and I probably should stop repeating myself too much, but I'll never forget going into the Soviet Union in the late 80s. Um, I did it on, a, on a college trip. And they had a a massive triple, you know, triple fence design where, you know, they got it clear cut so they could machine gun people and uh, who, who who made it past one of the of the barbed wire fences. And it was weird to be in a country that was building that kind of a wall to keep people in. I mean, I mean, it's very rare to have and, and you've got a few walls in the world and it's but it's interesting to live in a country where things are going so well, we actually are contemplating and debating over keeping a wall up to stop people from pouring into our borders because if we if we opened up that border we'd have 20 million a year coming in i think if we open up the border a little bit more we might be able to get enough uh, labor to handle the demand spike that's you know flowed from the back end of the lockdown personally <laughs> i mean like you know i i bring them in temporarily or something at least it's it's hard to it's hard to find anybody it's hard to find enough people to to meet the demand for everything that's going on because you know, post COVID, well, we were told not to make anything or build anything or buy anything for a year. Right. And then we were told, okay, go. And everybody decided to try and buy two years worth of shit in one year. And well, a lot of people, a lot of people had more, had more disposable income with some of those, some of those things than they'd ever some had. Some of it was that, but a huge part of it was a lockdown. And I just, right. it drives me nuts that it like, well, this goes back to the original thing or you know, when we were talking about uh, media and scientists both being afraid to talk about true things because they'll get a, get themselves ostracized from their peer mm -hmm. group, that's going on with economists right now too. Okay, so like let's take a macroeconomic view of just pure basic macroeconomics about floating currencies. Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll do hamburgers. You got an island in the South Pacific called Hamburger Stand. Okay, their economy is nothing but hamburgers. They sell 100 hamburgers per day. There's a hundred you know, hamburger stand dollars in circulation at any given time. And so the hamburgers cost a dollar a hamburger, right? Okay. This is basic economic model. And if you government prints 25 more dollars and throws it into circulation, then all the hamburgers are going to cost a dollar 25 and the Ron Paul people freak out, right? This is mm -hmm. what they've been doing for forever. But then inflation never happened when they freaked out because if the government prints 25 extra dollars, but also the hamburger makers make 25 extra hamburgers, the hamburgers still cost a dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as the amount of money that you're introducing into circulation tracks with the amount of production of the things that are available to buy, then you don't end up with inflation, or at least mm -hmm. it's not noticeable, right? Okay. 
So that's one angle of it. And that's always been the discussion that everybody's had about whether or not money circulation and, you know, the production of stuff or tracking appropriately. This is the thing that, that, you know, the Fed always talks about. But there's another thing that you could do is that what if you only had $100 in circulation and you prevented people from making hamburgers? You only let them make 80 hamburgers Mm -hmm. instead of 100. Then you'd get inflation too. Because those 80 hamburgers would be worth, what is a buck 25 or something like that, right? right? So you get the same amount of inflation without any money printing at all by reducing supply, okay? Hmm. And the worst thing that hamburger stand could ever do is print $25 and also prevent people from making 20 hamburgers. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? And now that the preventing people of making stuff has never been on the docket for like a, a government knob. They've never had the ability to turn that mm-hmm. until 2020. And then they locked us down to where you couldn't make stuff. Mm-hmm. If they didn't can't print any money at all in handouts in 2020, we still, still would have ended up in, we still would have ended up with an inflationary event purely because there wasn't enough stuff to buy. Mm-hmm. And when they printed out the money as well, they did both of those things. And the thing that's even worse is that we're connected into a global economy. So some of the lack of stuff to buy doesn't even have to do with domestic stuff. It has to do with the China shutting their, their plants down or wherever else, because the entire world all took the same approach to this thing at the same time, which is everybody printed money and everybody stopped making stuff. But an, an economist cannot come out and say inflation was caused by the lockdowns because he'll get run out of every cocktail party that he goes to. Right. You know, with Krugman and friends, right? You know, so there's that kind of so that's just another example of how tribalism is influencing the overall understanding of what's even happening around us. The fact that nobody's talking about how the lockdowns have caused inflation boggles my mind. Hmm. You know, I, I love the mathematical approaches. Sometimes when it gets into economic theory, I, I think it gets deep enough. It's kind of like predicting predicting the weather in 100 years. It gets deep yeah. enough where nobody knows what the hell they're talking about, and I think that they can all be full of shit. I'll, I'll, I went right. to Claremont McKenna, where probably a third of the, of the kids uh, majored in economics. But I remember that not, in the not-too-previous past from that, two guys who won individually, separately, uh, the Nobel Prize for Economics, had diametrically opposing views on how the economy worked. And I thought, so I can go my whole life, be the smartest economist that anybody's ever shook hands with, win the Nobel Prize for economics and have a 50-50 chance of being completely full of shit or not. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely accurate because the the economy is is a system that is so complex that it's impossible to model on a micro level. Right. I mean, it's- Because I never understood like, I was in a rich guy's house and he had a, uh, you know, like a painting that he bought for $20 million, which looked like my daughter could have painted. And now that painting was sort of like $43 million over five years. And he was happy and it was like, and I, and I was like little, I'll never make as much in my entire life as that guy's painting, painting did there. And I thought, does that, if I stole that painting and sold it for $10 million and then bought a yacht, a car and Coke and hookers and, and whatever one might do. Did I help the economy? And did he hurt the economy by hoarding that? I mean, you know, it's, it's money circulation, 
but I never under was able to answer that question in, in economics. The basic, if somebody steals something and then spends that money, has he helped the economy? Well, this is why the hamburger model is nice because everybody needs a hamburger, right? right? <laughs> you know, so how much money is sunk in, you know, bullshit is certainly part of the the equation and how much money is in a bank. Like, for instance, go back to the hamburger thing. Mm -hmm. What if the government, you got $100 in circulation and 100 hamburgers you're selling and that's your mm -hmm. economy. If the government prints $100, but they hand it to one guy and he puts it in a bank, there's no inflation, is there? Right. It's only inflation if that suddenly rich guy turns around and decides to start buying hamburgers, right. which is why we didn't see a whole lot of inflation in the 2008 bailout, because the money went straight to the banks. Right. It didn't right. go to the people. It is much more and made a bunch of people rich who were awful people who should have been thrown in jail instead of made rich. But um, but the the fact that it didn't go, it is objectively more fair to run a bailout like we did in 2020 where you give money directly to people who need the money. Mm -hmm. um, but that will put it directly into circulation. Right. So, right. But, what, but of course, inflation, but of course inflation isn't, isn't the only factor, right? You go right. back to your, your Island of hamburgers, you give it to one dude who puts it in the bank. Well, nobody's making hamburgers because, because his hundred dollars is now in the bank and somebody has to pay the flippers there to, to, to create. Oh, no. so you got a hundred, you got a hundred dollars in circulation. You got an extra hundred that goes in the, oh, it was an extra hundred, okay. right? You, go, you print an but, extra hundred to give it to that one guy, but if he, he becomes rich, but you know, but if, but if he spent that, yes, there's more inflation, but then there's right. more job creation and, 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 and happiness in the, in the society, despite the incremental inflation, no? You know, I mean, like, and then trying to attach happiness to economics is is tough too, you know, because there's a, mm. you know, the that's nonlinear for sure. Right. Like your happiness increases with your uh, annual earnings in the United States up to a threshold of about $80,000 a year, I think. Maybe a hundred, I'd have to go back and look you know at what, something I, like I, you that. Know, I think it flattens it, out. I, I think it's even less than that if I, if yeah, I recall. It might and, be, but it flattens and, out past that. It's like once you get out of the, out of, of the, you know, of economic insecurity, mm -hmm. then happiness is really uncorrelated to how much money. And that, that number also tracks pretty well with small business earnings. Mm -hmm. A guy makes enough to be, hey, I've got a car that's maybe not new every year, but it's it's good enough. My kids are clothed. Everybody's happy. I got a roof over my head. We get to go out to Denny's on, on Saturday morning, and I get to go to, to out to dinner once a week. And they stop making the sacrifices that you need to in a small business to get that to the two, three, four hundred thousand dollar range. So I'm, yeah. I, I think that those things are, are that's about where my that. small business is at. I've I, I make enough money to be very comfortable and I'm happy with that. And I don't feel like expanding. That's yeah. like I, I could I could throw in the time and effort to do that. But I got I got kids, you know. So. Yeah. I mean, look, there's there is a clear different personality to the ones who, you know, I, I, I know a young guy right now. He's going to be worth many millions of dollars in, in his life because he wants it so badly. And he's willing to not go out on dates and to not spend his money on cars and to, and to, you know, and to work seven days a week. You know, he's just laser focused on that. And, and it works. I've, I've seen it. I've seen it over time. I mean, the, the one nice thing to growing old is that you don't have to look at your theories as, as snapshots. You get to look at them as movies over time. Um, you know, as as you and I have seen, you know, we talk about crime. Well, man, I lived through the late seventies. I mean, it was it was it was crazy. And, and as far as as crime rates, and as far as the same, now we're, it's, we're coming back to that pendulum. The the same concept of oh, this guy uh, murdered three and raped two, 
you know, he's going to need extra counseling courses on, on here. I mean, there was that same kind of kind of attitude. And I, and I, I lived that very, very explicitly back back to then. And it was um, but so seeing changes over time, seeing theories implemented against against time. I, I, maybe that's where the, the, the word wisdom comes from, for people who pay attention and are smart. You throw in you throw in being able to see that over time. And, and perhaps that's what the word wisdom comes from. Well, you know, I'll, I'll dial it back a little bit now as far as like crime trends. Um, the late 70s, early 80s were awful on a per capita basis. If you want to look at like murder rate, um, that was about the same murder rate as the, the teens and early 20s during Prohibition. Mm -hmm. And then we saw that same uh, peak level of murder rate in um, the early 90s, the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. And... Um, where I guess really kind of mid nineties is when it peaked. And then after that, it fell off to about half what it was. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a, a lull in crime in the United States, the entire two thousands and all the way up really until 2020 mm -hmm. where the crime rates, if you're again, let's just looking at homicide victimization rate, they were as low as they were in the 1950s, right? They were very low mm -hmm. on a per capita basis, but everybody was screaming about like, you know, gun, crime and gun it's what they did is they substituted gun deaths for gun homicides to try right. to make people think it was going up because they were using suicide as mm -hmm. their thing which is an important problem because suicide is two-thirds of gun deaths mm -hmm. and seven-eighths of gun suicides are men mm -hmm. as a male mental health problem that's where yeah. the gun death problem is so but like right it, it didn't really rise at all until 2020 and 2020 rose because of you know sort of general lawlessness and the fact that people are burning buildings down right you know yeah and and a lot of policy decisions that said both a don't worry about the cops and b ACAB. You, pardon me yeah ACAB. yeah, yeah. The, all cops are yeah, bastards all cops thing. are bastards was a, was a... cops cops just got they decided to stop policing in dangerous areas because the risk wasn't worth the reward yeah and, like, and there's there's a like i have not seen any good studies on this but i have talked to cops who did that they were like well if we go to this area of town there's a chance that I, we're going to end up on YouTube and mm -hmm. then we're going to get fired because for doing what we unfortunately may have to do in that area of town. So we're just not going to answer that call. There were 911 calls that were just went unanswered in 2020 because of yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, we saw it a lot up in the in the Northwest, which had always been kind of reasonable before. You know, the other, the the, the murder rate is is interesting because it's it's both, one, one thing that's happened right now is, is, as, as opposed to other crime rates, which kind of came up slowly, this whooshed up very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it also broke out of its normal places. In other words, the, the crack epidemic and the murders that, that occurred there were largely among drug dealers. I mean, I mean that, 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 and, and people involved in that. A lot of murders are within you know, one ethnic class in, in America. There's, there's just not a whole lot of murders in my neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. um, in fact, I barely even see cops in my neighborhood, right? But I don't need them. Um, but this time, the the recent thing, and I think it's what's spiking some of the some of the feelings on this, which I I think are totally justified, is that there seems to be more of a randomness in some of these murders. Um, um, New York subway attacks. New York subway attacks generally over the last ten years had have one or two people would push somebody into onto, onto the uh, onto the subway tracks. 
last couple of years, it's been like seven or nine, where, where literally, now those are still small numbers overall, but they are right. equal to the entire decade per year on that. Right. Um, um, you, know, home, you know, the videos, not, not of, uh, of, you know, of, of homeless guys just stabbing a girl walking to the restaurant. I mean, it, the randomness of it, kind of like the homelessness situation, is bursting out of the places that are, that are used to it, if, if, if that's a, a fair way to say it, into societies that aren't and that's i i would caution you i would caution you one of the things that we do at my publication hand waving free cattery is the first thing we do when we hear about somebody getting pushed on a subway is like okay what's the actual rate and is it actually increasing and is the increase uh, big and Mm -hmm. like you know so like if if one person a year gets pushed onto a subway and then one year three people gets pushed on a subway is that a three three hundred percent increase in subway you know train track deaths yes but is it a big deal you know not by race not by the ratio population of, 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 of per capita City, odds of, right? of getting I mean, right yeah it's like it's way safer than shark attacks so right, um right. so like you know that before but at any time i just school I shooting here yeah right exactly <laughs> anytime you you uh you see something like this it's like okay well why did i see that i saw that right. because somebody was making money off of clicks Right. So anytime you see anything, it's like, oh, well, I, this wants me to click on it. It's, you know, 50, 50 chance. It's, it's either lies or statistical emissions or general bullshit. So like, I, I'm very wary to say that. And I have not looked specifically at demographic shifts in, in homicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of what I do look at homicide, it's, it's usually, it's, it's directly related to, to the gun death numbers because mm-hmm. that those are the spaces in which I swim. I write for open source defense. I write for recoil. Half my podcasts have been just like talking about gun stuff mm-hmm. you know, explicitly. Um, I don't think that um, I've seen a whole lot of major demographic shifts in it, but I don't, I would have to look into it more to problem see. Is you can, problem is you can't right now because the FBI numbers are A, always a couple years behind it. And B, uh, yeah. you've, you've undoubtedly followed the the when they change their method of collecting numbers and putting millions of dollars worth of of of, of efforts on local police departments. Yeah. Now the FBI crime stats, half those police departments are saying, "Fuck it, it's just not worth it." Given it's not worth it hiring more people to give the feds their their numbers. So those right. numbers are starting to get a little difficult to track now. I noticed that. I noticed problem. that. So half, half your, uh, your police about, I think it was about half are yeah, reporting exactly. the new system and about half are just decided, yeah, this is just too big of a pain in the ass. So tell me about the, that, that gun group. I went and I looked at that. Okay. Um, so, um oh, and, and what top line that came out of me is we're not here to yell about politics. We're actually here to, to, to encourage gun use and, and, and safe use of that. And it was kind of an interesting mix on, on that. It is 100% gun rights, 0% culture war, right? It is a group of people. There's me and a couple of other writers. The main, the lead writer is not me. is, is a guy named Kareem Shia. And he is, he does a weekly newsletter comes out every Monday and it is fantastic and short to read. Um, and it is written for, really to cater towards the intellectuals and the tech community who Mm -hmm. are gun positive. A lot of the folks who are involved in it are um, in really, I think everybody except me and Mike, the photographer were in blue States or blue cities. Kareem used to live in Manhattan. Um, Chuck Rossi is a a very important member of open source defense. And he was one of the first 50 some odd, maybe hundred employees at Facebook. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was like one of the lead developers of Facebook for a decade. And when he was at Facebook, they used to do, um, you would, each of the sort of managers would take their people to offsites, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, socialization things. He used to take them all a gun range and take them to a shooting course. Um, Chuck was, his story in Facebook is really kind of interesting. Um, there was a period, gun people hate Facebook, right? And the main reason they hate it is because there was a period where Facebook decided they're going to ban gun sales on the platform. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it was around 2018. Um, and they did it in a very ham-fisted way and accidentally just banned all the gun groups, <laughs> even if they weren't selling guns. So these are like big 200,000, you know, member groups and stuff like that, or people look at their local shooting club or whatnot, and they just nuked them all. And, you know, Chuck is a, Chuck's a competition shooter. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's quite good, very run a carbine, run a pistol, very, very talented. So, and he was also like one of the, one of the big wigs in, in the, on the dev side, he walked into Zuckerberg's office and he said, Mark, we just did something very bad. We have to fix it and explain what had happened. And Mark said, yeah, you're right. That was bad. We need mm-hmm. to fix it. And we also need to come up with policies so we don't do anything this bad again whenever we decide to ban something else. That didn't work. Chuck, well, good guy. So what he said is, that, Chuck, I'm moving you over to the client side. Mm-hmm. You're going to stop your job. You're going to move mm-hmm. over here. You're going to start by fixing this and getting all the gun groups back. And then the next thing you do is come up with policies and procedures for banning things appropriately or whatnot now how much of that stuck eh, yeah. right but um but chuck was involved in getting a, a lot not all but many of these groups back he has mm-hmm. a lot of connection to all of them and um also wrote up you know sort of a guideline to to make sure that the stuff is done if not lacking a ham fist at least less ham yeah right you know uh, well, so you're speaking then, to somebody who had just under three and a half million followers on on Facebook sites. They took them down in one day because oh, of geez. a because of a lying New York Times article that we didn't know about that because they took it down the week before. I never even got an email back from anyone there. Oh my god! After spending god. quarter million dollars in, in in advertising to help build those on on there and and kind of oh. having that as the base. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's Facebook it's, can go pound it, it is it is yeah. There, what goes on in there is is heavily ideological. And um, so one of the things that we were, you know, because it's open source offense is 100% gun rights, 0% mm-hmm. culture war. It's like we can talk and the people in the gun space realize that, um, that you know, are also very usually heavily First Amendment mm-hmm. and against censorship and stuff like that. But, you know, given the world that we live in, one of the things that we've decided at OSD is, well... If it so happens that the tech community is going to have this kind of power, what we have to do is we have to work to convert them to our side, go where the actual power is, mm-hmm. and convert mm-hmm. on, a, on a one-to-one basis, do everything we can to try and bring them around on our one issue, because mm-hmm. we're not going to try and fix the world, just pro-gun. And, and so that's where the, some of the point of these, uh, these shooting events Yes, where we, you know, when we went to to San Jose, we ran that. You know, had to, did they have a presence know, probably... there? Did they have a presence there, or was that a one-off in San Jose? Um, so uh, Chuck used to live in San Jose, and so he had a lot of connections, and um, he had a, he has a house there, so he kind of ran that one. When uh, we did uh, Kareem, currently lives in Austin, and we did one in Austin, a you know, twenty twenty one. It was a carbine course. It was AR fifteens mm-hmm. and stuff, 
And I don't know where we're going to do the next one yet, but we're trying to do one a year and we might scale it up to two or three a year. Hmm. And these are, you know, the idea is to try and get influential people inside the tech community to come out and do it. And we've got a photographer who's, you know, featured in Time Magazine before doing B-roll for Instagram and, you know, that kind of thing. And, does, um, does that and, does that aspect freak them out when, when there's like, oh, you're going to be posting stuff like this? Does that? Oh, no, we don't. We get permission for anything we're going to post and then we yeah, yeah but when you're saying hey tech guy not only do i want to teach you to shoot but we're gonna have a cameraman there does that does that extra we talk about it bother them it, we it, every person is is briefed individually and they're like right. you know it, we have a list of who doesn't want their photos up and who does Got it. And, Got it. and we follow it right okay. you know like that's that's because we're sensitive to that too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, daiji our graphic artist actually runs a separate kind of merch company on the side which is hilarious he right he does um he'll have like t-shirts and hats and merch that is gun specific, but only someone who knows about guns would get the in joke. Right. So like, he's got one like for it people that's got a little symbol right here on the, on the thing. And it's got one file folder, three file folders, five file holders with a little switch. So like a selector switch for a M16, oh, oh, but oh, it's okay. file folders. And so nobody who else right, who doesn't right. know anything about That's guns hilarious. would get it. But like you can wear it to work. And then if you, there's somebody else, you know, yeah, it's like the old, also into it's guns, like the they old, can pull you over to the side. It's like the old Christians who would make half of the uh, half of the fish symbol and nobody well, would know what that was. So right. They, no, no. What's even better, I'll, like I'll, I, uh, I go to SHOT Show every year. And the last couple of times I've hung out with Chris Chang. Uh-huh. You familiar with him? No. Um, He's a, a one top shot, the TV show, season five or six. He's a competition shooter, very famous, uh, well-connected to Recoil Magazine. Also, uh, a gay Asian dude in San Francisco. Right. 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 So he breaks the mold. He's spoken before Congress in favor of gun rights or whatnot. And we were having drinks um, last year, and he was talking about what it's like being in San Francisco and being a gun person. And he said, it's like being gay in the 1980s. Where you have to hide it. You have to hide it because you might. And like, I would never say that, but the fact that he told me that means that I feel like I can share it because he would know, right? You know, um, and he's he's heavily involved right now in the um, in the leadership for the Pink Pistols, which is the gay mm-hmm. uh, gun rights group, one mm-hmm. of them, um, and also is involved in a in an Asian American uh, gun rights organization, that kind of thing, and he does good work and. He's interesting. I okay. hung, hung out with him. My, a, my, my gun claim to fame is when I ran for office in 1998, I was either the number one or number two recipient of NRA money in California, which made, hmm. me, feel, which made me feel pretty good. So um, one of the things that to round it back to, to open source hmm, defense, sure. well, by keeping the culture war stuff out of it and keeping the, the information clean, mm-hmm. one of the things that liberal gun owners have a problem with is that they don't have any articles or any websites they can share with their liberal friends that without, gives them their position. Without also right? screaming without, manga and, and Right, all exactly, the without stuff, banner right. ads on the sides talking about libtards or whatever. Yeah. So, so like what we're providing them, we're just, we're out of it. We're right. not liberal, we're not conservative, but right. we're providing them something that, that is shareable among people who don't get yeah, it or sense. aren't involved. And yeah, so right. we get a lot of traffic that way. And that's also kind of the, there's, there's game theory in that too, right? So mm-hmm. if you, in a first pass opposed voting system, everything is going to devolve into two parties because mm-hmm. of math. And right now guns have a hundred percent 
support inside one of the two parties. Mm -hmm. Like that's a broad line, but mm -hmm. because of the way uh, the sort of clickbait engine works, it's always going to, these two things are going to maximize towards 50% splits. And if you can ever get 60%, that's a blowout. Mm -hmm. right? Well, if we're starting at 50%, we only got to get 10% to be a blowout. We only got to get, you know, uh, you know, two out of 10 blues to switch on the gun issue and guns and win. You're safe. Right. right? Guns right. win. So the so the the headway they really have been winning. It, it is oh, tightening up a little bit, but yeah, uh, it's like if you look at any by any of available metric gun rights are winning in a big way. Kareem wrote a very long article about that. If you type, go to Google and type mm -hmm. open source defense, gun rights are winning. You can see graphs, charts, mathematics. Right. I mean, the Brady campaign, the Brady campaign started out as the a campaign to end handgun ownership. Mm -hmm. Now their backs up against the wall. They're saying, right. can we at least get rid of the AR-15s? And the answer right. is no. Right. right. So like they've had their they've been continually going backwards, but this isn't understood very well in the gun community. The gun community mm -hmm. thinks that, that, that there's lions at the gates and the and the, the gun rights organizations, they kind of think they're winning, but they're not. Con constitutional carry is in what? I don't know dozens of states now at least well because political political analysts and 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 insiders on both sides could read cross tabs in in, in election returns and there were a couple of years yeah. where the democrats got their rear ends handed to them in a bad way because they yeah. because they took the twitter concept seriously and, and got hit as a californian though i see it yeah. a little bit differently as a californian i see sure. it death by a, a thousand paper cuts kind of oh no yeah so so yeah the 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 blue coast and the northeast the the heavily blue states new york is you know outside of supreme court intervention i mean bruin was extremely broad right um but uh uh outside of that the blue states were getting worse on guns and you know the other 40 states in the country were getting right more pro-gun and so like you know, and then and the other thing you see there's so many guns out there you can't take them away yeah right. one of my favorite charts of the world is is the private ownership of firearms in the world and it's got it was a it was a it was an infographic and the size of america compared to the rest of the world is is kind of mind-boggling in, yeah. in a very real sense we got more we got more guns than people here there's yeah. no way to get rid of them yeah, yeah. all right dude well look that's a good uh, a good wrapping point this was fun. I could have done this for an extra extra two hours. I know you got things to do in the afternoon, but uh, I do. I enjoyed this. I enjoyed. Yeah. This. Well, if you want to do it again sometime, reach out and, and let me know. Well, you made it to the end. I hope you enjoyed yourself and learned something new. You can subscribe to the podcast to get notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on YouTube and Rumble since all of these are done on video as well. Thanks for listening and until next time.